For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been studying the book of Genesis, which is the first book in our Bibles. It covers the most ancient events covered in Scripture. We're, we're 4,000 years ago, are the events that we've been studying. And we saw the origins of the, the world. We saw the origins of humanity. We saw the origins of evil. So we kind of had the big picture. And then the last several weeks, we've been zoomed in on one particular guy named Abraham and his family and a promise that God made to him. And we've learned quite a few lessons from this guy Abraham that understanding his life is crucial to understanding everything else that comes after him in the Bible. You know, it's through Abraham we learn things like how to get right with God, that it's not by doing good works or a bunch of rituals. That's not how Abraham got right with God at all. We saw a lot of problems in his life, a lot of mistakes that he's made. No, we saw that it was his belief in God. He trusted God, and he didn't earn his righteousness, but God actually gave him the gift of what it calls righteousness. It gave him right standing before God. God forgave him. He cleansed him so that he could spend eternity with Abraham. And so we saw that getting right with God is by faith alone, a common misconception about religion. And Abraham's faith, we learned a number of things about Abraham's faith. We see that Abraham left home. God called him when he was way, way, a thousand miles away east of the promised land, Ur of the Chaldees. God called him. He said, I want you to leave everything, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you, a land I'm going to give to you. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you this land, and through you and your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He left home, it says, without even knowing where he was going, trusting God. He also lived there as a stranger. It's not just that he went to this promised land, but he stayed there. As it says, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so, you know, it's one thing in the heat of the moment to get up your, your willpower and to, to follow God, do, you know, to some kind of radical venture of faith. But then it's another thing when the weeks turn into months, turn into years, turn into decades, and things get hard, and you're tempted to go back. You know, here he is. He's living like a foreigner, living in tents. He stayed there. And he knew the way back home. You always know the way back to where you came from. And you can find the way back there if you wanted to. He could have gone back, but no, he stayed there. And he lived in tents, moving around from place to place without the security of the walled city he probably had in the home that he left, trusting God. We also see that they waited. He and his wife waited for this promised son. Again, not without problems along the way, as we saw last time. But God promised Abraham, childless Abraham, that I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then he made him wait 25 years until he actually gave him and Sarah a son. It wasn't until our study last, last time that we saw God promised, finally, I know you're 99, your wife is 89, but by the time she's 90, you guys are going to be standing there holding a little baby boy. Pretty remarkable. And yet they believed God. They trusted him. Abraham's faith really comes into clear focus when you look at the faith of one of his other family members, a guy named Lot, a guy who has come up multiple times in our study already. Tonight we're going to focus on Lot 
Because that's where Genesis turns its focus, onto Lot. And we're going to see the outcome of Lot's life. Lot is Abraham's nephew. His dad died when he was young, and it looks like Abraham took him in, almost like, almost like he adopted him or something, took him into his household. Lot left home with Abraham when Abraham left and lived in the promised land with him. And so he had, in that sense, his faith was sort of like Abraham's. He trusted God. He left home. He was a genuine believer. Scripture tells us, it's hard to actually see that from the Old Testament material on him, but the New Testament material makes it clear. It calls him righteous Lot. And so he must have had enough faith and the right kind of faith, the right kind of trust in God to be declared right by him. But Lot's faith, unlike Abraham's, was a compromised faith, a convenient faith. It wasn't the radical faith of Abraham that we've been studying. And so I'd like to look at the difference as we go along here between the radical faith of Abraham and the convenient faith of Lot. You know, Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. But unfortunately, that's exactly what Lot attempts to do here. He tries to keep one foot in the things of God and one foot in what the Bible calls the world and try to live for both. And that's a miserable state for a believer to be in. You know, Lot's compromise showed up in a series of choices that he made, some of which we've already seen, we've already studied in the book of Genesis. So I'll just review in case you weren't here. In Genesis 13, we see he left Abraham. They part ways. Their herds were growing too big. Their shepherds were fighting with each other. Abraham just said, look, you just pick whichever land you want, and I'll go the opposite direction. And Lot looked around at the rugged mountains that they'd been hiking up and down for years. He looked at the tents that they kept having to break down and carry around and set up again. And he was like, you know what? I'm sick, of the, I'm sick of the tent life. I'm sick of the mountain life. He looks down the mountain into the beautiful Jordan Valley, well watered, and he said, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. And so he heads down out of the mountains into the plains, and it says that he moved, he lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near a city called Sodom. In fact, all the, all the cities down in that plain were apparently pretty wealthy. You know, what's wrong with living near Sodom? Well, we'll see some of the problems in Sodom later. But for now, we'll just say it was a spiritually dangerous place to live. Sodom, Gomorrah, and the others down there. They were wealthy. And Lot, you know, I'm sure it started innocently enough. He's like, you know, what's the harm in living down here near these cities? You know, maybe I can uh, reach out to some of them and tell them about God. Maybe have a spiritual impact down here. They'd probably also be pretty good for trade. Maybe make some money down here. And so he moves down and he pitches his tents near Sodom. Abraham knew this was a bad move, I'm sure. I'm sure he he prayed for his foolish nephew, Lot. But they part ways. They don't see each other for a while. However, in Genesis 14, we see Lot runs into trouble. He's captured. Remember, we studied that story. The cities of Sodom were attacked all the, the, whole, the five cities in that area were attacked by these powerful coalition of kings from the east. And, you know, that wouldn't have been a problem for Lot if he was still living in those tents. He could have just packed up the tents, moved away for a little while, and moved back in once the war was over. But unfortunately, he had given up the tents by then. And it says they also captured Lot, Abraham's nephew, who lived in Sodom. And so he'd gone from camping near Sodom to living in Sodom. Again, I'm sure that was a gradual transition. You know, he's probably started with day trips in, starts making friends. He's thinking, you know, I'm here so often. 
And boy, that city wall sure looks pretty nice. Um, maybe we'll just buy a place here. What could go wrong? So it probably started innocently enough and gradually, but, you know, he's, this, this, um, these armies come through. They capture him. One of Lot's guys escapes, and he goes right up the mountains and right to where Abraham was camped, which shows that Lot and his guys knew where Abraham was this whole time, could have come back at any moment, and he says, Lot's been captured. Well, we saw Abraham. He goes, he, he rescues Lot. He brings him back, and then he, he not only rescues Lot, but he rescues all the people of Sodom and all of their stuff, and they come back, and they have this really interesting interaction. He saw God rescue him. He saw God rescue his friends through Uncle Abraham. And then in this valley outside of Jerusalem, they meet this, this godly dude named Melchizedek, and we studied him. And they learn, Lot and all the people of Sodom sit there and they watch as, as Melchizedek declares, Yahweh, he is the God who created heaven and earth. He's the one that saved you guys and Abraham is under his blessing. And so at this point, Lot has a choice to make. The king of Sodom and the rest of the people of Sodom are like, whatever, we don't care about this. Give us our stuff, we're going home. And Lot, he stands on the one hand looking over at Uncle Abraham, the guy who basically raised him, who rescued him, the man from whom he learned about God, the God of the Bible. On the other hand, he looks over at his friends and all of their stuff heading back down into the plains. And he turns to Abraham and he says, I'm sorry, Uncle, thanks a lot, but I got to go. And so he leaves Abraham behind. Again, we see his compromise. And then Lot builds a life in Sodom over the next 20 years or so. Yeah, he spent the next 20 years or so out of touch with Abraham, apparently alienated from Abraham, doing his own thing down there in Sodom. During this time, it looks like Lot got married. He, there's no mention of a wife or a family before. It looks like he took a wife from down in that area. He has kids. It looks like, by my count, I think four daughters, maybe more, maybe some sons too, it doesn't say. Probably needed a bigger house since uh, his daughters and two of his daughters and their husbands are living there by the time we meet him in Genesis chapter 19. And so, you know, he... He probably looked up at the mountains from time to time. On a clear day, I'm sure he could see the 20 miles or 30 miles or so up the mountain to where Abraham was camped. I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah occasionally would walk to the eastern side of the mountain and look down and, and see Sodom there and wonder how Lot was doing. I'm sure Abraham thought about Lot and prayed for him. But as he looked up at those mountains and remembered his old life, he probably was thinking, you know, I'm doing pretty well for myself here. You know, his compromised life at this point, you could maybe argue it's looking better than Abraham's. Here he is. He's got the house. He's got the family. He's got the wife. He's influential in this city. And Abraham, he's still waiting for a kid, waiting for the promise. He's got no walls. He's got no protection. He's living in tents up in those, those mountains. Pfft. Lots of life's looking pretty good at this point. Well... <clears throat> Things are not as they seem. And as we'll see tonight, 
and we're going to study the story about Lot. God's going to show up and he's going to visit Abraham and then he's going to visit Lot and he's going to have a meal with each, lunch with Abraham, dinner with Lot. And by the end of the dinner with Lot, we're going to see the real reality, the reality behind the choices and how foolish Lot has been to spend his life in compromised faith. So Genesis 18, we read in verse 1 that Yahweh, and that's God's name in the Bible, he appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. So he's up in the mountains here, and he appears to him. You know, in the past he's appeared in dreams or visions. This time he actually shows up as the angel of the Lord, who we met last time, and two other angels. Yeah, in Scripture sometimes angels show up as, looking like humans, looking like men. And um, that's what happens here. The angel of the Lord we saw last time is God the Son, Jesus, showing up in the Old Testament before, of course, in the New Testament where he actually is born into the human race. Here he's showing up as the angel of the Lord. So he can speak in the first person for, for God. And so these three guys show up. It's, it's not clear if Abraham can tell their angels at first, but he sure can by the end of the interaction with them. Well, Abraham, he prepares a great feast for these guys, and they address Sarah directly, and they say, Sarah, you're going to have a son. You know, she had heard, I'm sure, the promise that God made to Abraham that we studied last time, but she didn't believe it yet. She even laughs when they say, you're going to have a son, and they say, no, you are going to have a son. Mark my words. And from that point on, it looks like Sarah believes. Well, dinner finishes up, though. And it says, the men got up from their meal and they looked out towards Sodom, which is where they were headed next. And as they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. He kind of escorts them back to the, the road, down the hill into the valley. And as they're going, Yahweh asks himself, should I hide my plan from Abraham? He has a plan here. And he's talking to himself, and, and this doesn't, it almost sounds at first like he's confused, like, what should I do? I'm so indecisive. No, this is, again, this is anthropomorphic language. This is, this is God. He's trying to let us into how he thinks about things and why he does what he does. He's trying to use human terms to explain that to us. He says, Abraham, he will become a great and mighty nation. There's, again, repeating that promise he's made numerous times to Abraham. And he says, I have made Abraham my friend, or I have chosen him. Why was Abraham going to occupy the special place in God's plan? Was it because he was such a good person? No. It's because God initiated with him. Because God made a promise to him, and Abraham responded in faith. And I love the language here, because here we have the creator of the universe saying, I've made him my friend. And that's an offer that God makes to each one of you here. Jesus said on the last night of his life to his disciples, he says, look, you guys are my friends. I, I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm letting you in on what I'm really thinking now, what I'm really going to do. God is offering you a friendship because of what Jesus Christ has done. Will you accept that offer of friendship like Abraham did? That's why Abraham was something special. It's because he was the friend of God. And God says, I have, a, I have a special relationship with Abraham. And the reason for that is so he'll direct his children and his household after him 
to keep the way of Yahweh by doing what is right and just. He says, he's going to have to teach. He's going to have to pass on knowledge about me to his son and their, their kids, his, his son's children as well. We see what a miserable failure Lot was at this directive right here. What a poor job Lot has done directing his children and his household into the ways of God. But God speaks up and he says, you know, I've heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I've heard. If not, I want to know. And so God reveals to Abraham his plan. He says, their sin is so great that I'm going to bring judgment on these cities. Judgment on these cities. I know this is not a popular topic. We don't like to think of God in these terms. And yet God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring judgment. Their sin had been so bad for so long, there's been such a great outcry. People are complaining of such injustice to God that God's like, look, I've got to do something here. Something must be done. And God, a lot of times, he lets evil go on in this world, but occasionally he'll step in and put a stop to it, like like this case right here. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Scripture lists a lot of sins. There's the really rampant sexual immorality, and that's, that's really what this city is known for. But it bothers me how Christians self-righteously rail on one of the sins that Sodom's known for, and they ignore a lot of the other ones. Jeremiah 23 says it's not just the sexual immorality, there's the lying. They enabled criminals. It's really the injustice of this city. There's another major problem with it. They oppressed orphans and widows, Isaiah says in 1, 10, and 17. Ezekiel says it was their pride, they were gluttonous, and they lacked concern for the poor. It's really social injustice that Ezekiel is singling out. And Isaiah puts it this way, he says, these people display their sin like the people of Sodom and don't even try to hide it. It's like the moral compass had been completely damaged in this city, and they were just brazen in their defiance against God and their mistreatment of human beings made in the image of God. It was bad. God says he's going to do something about it. You see, God is a God of mercy and a God of justice. And we can't pit these two aspects of his character against one another. You know, he's a God of justice. He can't just turn a blind eye to injustice and moral atrocities forever. At some point, he'll do something about it. If not in this life, definitely in the next. He created humans in the first place. He created us. He warned us that sin brings death. So he says, because of that, I I do have a right to do this. But we also see the mercy of God in that his patience. We see God offers a way out like he's going to do here. He's going to go down into this, this city and offer people a way out of this judgment. Judgment also causes God great sorrow. He says numerous places in scriptures is not something he relishes in. Let's not forget either that God has already saved the entire city of Sodom once, back in Genesis 14, when he rescued them and gave them a witness to who he is right there in front of all of them. And they turned and went right back home to their old ways. And also what God is doing here is he's opening the door for a conversation with Abraham. He's inviting Abraham to a dialogue here so that Abraham can understand God's ways. Let's see how this conversation goes. 
The other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but Yahweh remained there with Abraham. It's like he's just lingering. He knows Abraham wants to bring something up. And so finally, for the first time in Scripture, we see a human approach God. Abraham comes to him, and he says, God, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? There could be good people down there in that village. What if, what if you find 50 righteous people living there in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you would not do such a thing, destroying the righteous with the wicked. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He's right about God. God is the judge of all the earth, and he's appealing to the character of God here. He says, God, I know you're a righteous judge. Are you really going to wipe out the innocent? And God says, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare the entire city for their sake. Just 50, that's all we need. Abraham says, since I've begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose, let's say, there's only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Would you really destroy the city if for lack of five? I mean, if you're going to save it for 50, why not 45? And God says, hmm, I won't destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Look, God, Abraham says, what if there's only 40? <laughs> I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. What if only 30 righteous people are found there? <laughs> I won't destroy it if I find 30. He says, forgive me for speaking up again, but God, what if there's only 20? <laughs> I mean, you're going to save it for 30. 20 is not that much less. Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Let's suppose only 10 are found there. What would you do then? I mean, this is the last time. And God says, well, then I won't destroy it for the sake of the 10. So it sounds like some kind of crazy auctioneer. He's like, come give me 20, give me 20, give me 20, give me 10, give me 10. <laughs> is God like the worst haggler ever? <laughs> no, what God is doing here is he letting, he's letting Abraham in on what he has to deal with all the time. Such wicked stuff is going on. How bad does it have to get before I step in? When should I step in? How, how much should I do? This is, this is a God of justice and mercy, a God of love and justice. These are the sorts of things he's wrestling with. These are ultimately, this is ultimately the tension that led him to send his own son. He would die for the sins of the world so that we could be forgiven. But this is before that time. And Abraham stops at 10. He's probably thinking lots, he knows lots there. Lots have been there 20 years. He's thinking, surely he must have had some spiritual impact during that time. I mean, he, was, he, was, he grew up in Abraham's household learning about Yahweh. He's got a family. I mean, that should be several right there. He's got four girls and maybe they got some husbands. You're pushing 10 at that point. And so he stops and he says, okay. And he's, he's learned something about the justice of God and the mercy of God. 
And at that point, Yahweh finished his conversation. He went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Well, the scene shifts to later that evening. Genesis 19, verse 1, it says, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And what do they find? Lo and behold, Lot sitting in the gateway of the city. Whoa! This is a long way from pitching his tents near Sodom. First he pitched his tents, then he bought a house, and now here he is sitting in the gate. What does it mean to sit in the gate of the city? Sitting in the gate was reserved for leaders of great influence. This is where the king would sit. This is where the the influential business people would sit. This is where when you had a dispute, you brought it to the gate for a judgment. And Lot has worked his way up through the ranks in Sodom to where he is sitting at the gate. He's the only one sitting at the gate at this point, right now, at this time of day. Boy, I mean, if, if Lot has this much influence in Sodom, maybe there's some hope for this city. Maybe this city's going to make it. Well, Lot saw them. He got up to meet them, and he bowed with his face to the ground. And he said, my lords, come to my home to wash your feet. You've got to be my guest for the night. And then you have to get up early in the morning and get on your way again, very early, before anyone else is up. You better get out of here. Come, come on, let's go, let's go. Oh, that's cool. They said, well, we're going to spend the night here in the city square. He's like, nope, can't do that. Come on, Lot insisted. So at last, they went home with him, and he fixed a meal for them. But before they retired for the night, apparently word had gotten out that there were some guests in the home of Lot. It says, all the men of Sodom, both young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. This is not just a few. This is pretty much everybody. This is not just the men of the city. This is grandpa and grandson as well. And what do they want? Simple. Who are those men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) And again, this, this is not just a small group in this city. This is everybody, young and old. Well, Lot steps outside to talk with him, shutting the door behind him. And he says, look, my friends, (laughs) he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Which really shows how little influence Lot actually had in the city of Sodom. He knew this was wrong. He'd spent enough time in Abraham's household to know that this was wrong In fact, Peter tells us he was so compromised that Lot was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. This was the life that he was trying to navigate. On the one hand, trying to, you know, here's his friends, and yet they bear no resemblance to anything that came out of Abraham's household. The wickedness here is, is astounding, and he's tormented by this. He's living this life of anguish, torn between what he knows to be true as a, as a genuine believer and the life that he's living. 
It shows Lot's complete lack of spiritual impact with his so-called friends. I mean, he must have had some sort of impact in the city if he's sitting in the city gate. So I don't know. Maybe he, like, helped him fix up the gate. Maybe he organized some sort of, like, you know, a community garden or something. Maybe there was, like, a clean up the litter outside of Sodom and Day. But any kind of spiritual influence, there was none at all. He had no authority in this town. Uh, I guess he needed them too much. And look how he tries to, to fend them off. He says, look, guys, I've got these two virgin daughters, okay? Let me bring them out, and you can just do with them as you wish. Nice move, Lot. But please, leave these men alone. They're my guests. They're under my protection. Uh, Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider, and now he's acting like our judge. Yeah, no matter how much Lot tried to assimilate with them, he never fully threw in with their world. He wasn't fully in with God either. This is the most pitiful state. There are believers today that live their lives like this with one foot in the world. They don't go far enough into it to see how bad it is. One foot kind of in the things of God. They never go far enough after that to see how good it is. And so they live this life where they're split down the middle, never really feeling it at home with or known by anyone. He's still an outsider in their minds. And now he's acting like our judge. Well, we'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunge toward Lot to break down the door. But then the two angels, who he's supposed to be protecting, reach out, pull Lot into the house. They bolt the door. And then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house. So they gave up trying to get inside. Some sort of a, uh, they stunned him in some way just to get him to back off, um, just to make it through the night. It might might be no one in this house was going to make it through the night otherwise. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Lot, do you have any other relatives in this city? Get them out of this place. Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else. We're about to destroy this city completely. The outcry against this place is so great it has reached Yahweh, and he sent us to destroy it. Yeah, the rumors are true here. The outcry is so great. Think how many others had been victimized by this same mob. How many others had turned over their daughters? How many others had cried out for God to rescue them as they were abused and raped by this mob and victimized in other ways as well. How long is God supposed to just stand by and not do anything with this sort of behavior going on? You know, in the West, we're like, how could God judge anybody? In other parts of the world where they see this kind of violence, they wonder, how could God not judge this? God, when are you going to do something about the evil? The outcry is so great it has reached Yahweh and he has sent us to destroy it. God steps in. And in this case, he does something about it. And so Lot rushed to tell his daughter's fiancés or sons-in-law. That's how some translations render that. Quick, guys, you've got to get out of the city. Take my daughters. Yahweh's about to destroy it. And how do they react? They thought he was joking. Lot... Such a joke. Failure as a witness. Failure as a father. Failure as a host. 
It's a pitiful joke of a man. Well, at dawn, the next morning, the angels became insistent. Lot is still there at, at sunrise. And they're like, come on, hurry up. Take your wife and at least your two daughters who are here. Get out right now or you are going to be swept away in the destruction of the city. And it says Lot still hesitated, looking back, not wanting to leave the life he had built, the wealth he had amassed, the city he called home. And he's hesitating to finally grab his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters and they rush outside of the city to safety. Because Yahweh was merciful. That's why. We see the mercy of God in Lot's life rescuing him. Well, when they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, run for your lives. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. That's an important command. Don't look back or you'll regret it. Escape to the mountains or you're going to be swept away. You've got to get out of the plain. And this is where, where Lot finally objects. He says, oh no, my Lord, Lot begged. What's he going to beg? Is he going to beg for the, the, to spare Sodom, to spare the lives of the people there? No. He says, you've been so gracious to me. You've saved my life. You've shown such great kindness. Now, I can't go to the mountains. Don't send me back there. The tents and Uncle Abraham, please, anywhere but there. I can't go back to that life. I love the city. Disaster would catch me there. I would soon die. Actually, that's the opposite of what they said. <laughs> they said, go to the mountains or disaster will catch you. Look, there's this there's a small village nearby. Please, can I go there instead? Don't you see how small it is? My life will be saved. And the angel's like, fine, just, I'll grant your request. I won't destroy the little village. But hurry, escape to it. I can do nothing until you arrive there. And this explains... Why that village was known as Zor, which means little place. We actually know where the city is. It's right down at the southern tip of the Dead Sea. Well, Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. And then Yahweh rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. It's still a desolate wasteland today. Lot's wife looked back longingly as she was falling behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. She perished. Why such harsh treatment? A lot of translations add longingly, because that's what's certainly implied here. You know, she was looking back in direct defiance of the orders of the angels as they were dragging her out of the city that she didn't want to leave. And now she's looking back, longing for that life, still identifying with that life and the way of the people there. And so she perished. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. He also says the judgment that's going to come at the end of the world, he says it's going to be a lot like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. When people were just going about their lives and completely unaware spiritually, and then God finally brought, brings an end to human sin. He says, remember, don't forget about this. Well, what about the 
viability of these claims that these cities down in that region south of the Dead Sea were destroyed. Some people actually think that Sodom, Gomorrah, and these five cities were, are under what is now the southern end of the Dead Sea. That It's only 15 to 30 feet deep down there. The Dead Sea is receding as well due to water shortage. And so it's possible that that shallow end of the Dead Sea will uncover some archaeological treasures at some point. But even with that, Walter Kaiser, Old Testament scholar, points this out. He says, One site in that region, known as Babedra, contains the remains of a heavily fortified and settled community dating from 3150 to 2200 B.C., just before the time of Abraham. What startled the excavators was the huge layers of ash reaching many feet in its depths. Moreover, so hot and intense had been the flames that destroyed this site that the bricks had turned red permanently from the intense heat. Intense burning in a city with thick layers of ash right in the region where Sodom and Gomorrah was said to be destroyed. Bryant Wood, another Old Testament scholar, archaeologist, he says, more intriguing than the mere fact that the house was destroyed by fire, however, is the way in which it was burned from the inside out. It's evident that the roof engulfed in flames, collapsed into the building and caused the interior burning. Yeah, they can study the patterns of the fire. In other words, the destruction of the charnel houses at Babadra was brought about by the roofs first being set on fire, then collapsing, causing the interiors of the buildings to burn. Usually fire goes from the ground up. In this case, it came from the top down. This is entirely consistent with the biblical description out of the heavens. It's possible there was some sort of earthquake. There's a huge fault line that runs through there with huge deposits of various uh, fossil fuels. That's possible. Regardless, it was, a, it was a divine judgment on these cities, just like God warned about and finally brought. Well, Abraham wakes up the next morning to the saddest, possibly the saddest sight he's ever seen. He hurried out to that place where he had stood in Yahweh's presence, looking down into the valley, and what he saw there as he looked across the plain toward Sodom and Gomorrah, was columns of smoke rising from the cities like smoke from a furnace. But God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. So Abraham has now saved his nephew Lot's life twice. But unfortunately... Lot's story doesn't end there, and there's a short epilogue. It says in verse 30, afterward, Lot left Zor because he was afraid of the people there. So much for safety in the city. He's paranoid now. He's scared about what's going to happen to him. He's been traumatized by these events. And it says he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. I guess he'd rather live in a cave in the mountains than go back to Abraham's camp. What a contrast from the life he lived with Abraham. Lot went for wealth and comfort, and look at what he got instead. Yeah, I guess he was looking good for a little while in the city with the money, with the family, but he lost it. He lost it all. And now it's just him and his two daughters living in a cave in the mountains. And then things get worse. One day the older daughter said to her sister, You know, our father's old and there's no men left anywhere in this entire area. 
So we can't get married like everyone else. Remember, these are the two daughters he tried to hand over to the mob in Sodom. You know, they're worried, they, they, their frame of reference is what everyone else is doing. He raised his girls in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so everything they learned about marriage and sex, they learned right there in that city. And they said, we can't get married like everyone else. And so they come up with a plan. Let's get our father drunk with wine, and then we'll have sex with him. You know, the Bible's not against drinking, but it's against drunkenness because sometimes you do really dumb things like this. That way we'll preserve our family line through our father. I guess this sounds like the sort of plan you'd come up with when you were raised the way they were raised. And so that night, they got him drunk with wine, and the older daughter went in and had intercourse with her father. This is the Bible we're reading. Savage. So Lot is pretty drunk here. Drunk enough not to know what's even going on. Drunk enough that his oldest daughter is losing her virginity to him and he has no idea that it happened. You see how pitiful he has fallen. The life of compromise. He was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. The next morning, the older daughter said to her younger sister, I had sex with our father last night. Let's go get him drunk with wine again, and you can go have sex with him. Better make doubly sure that we carry on our lineage. And so they got him drunk with wine again, and the younger daughter went in and had intercourse with him. As before, he was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. And as a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. And this is the last verse we have in the Bible about Lot's life. Yeah, there's verses looking back on his life, but this is the pitiful final historical statement about Lot. Who thought he was making a pretty savvy move, trying to serve God and money, and in the end, everything fell apart. Let's just think about a couple lessons we can learn from the life of Lot in closing. First of all, his compromised faith becomes clear when compared with the life of Abraham. You know, Lot, you know, both men left home to follow God's call, but the similarities end there. Lot chose the way of immediate gratification. Abraham trusted the promises of God, even if it meant waiting, even if some of the promises wouldn't even be fulfilled until the next life. That was the faith of Abraham. That's radical faith. Lot's compromised faith was unable to lead his family or anyone else. He lost them all because of his compromise. Abraham, on the other hand, his family has problems. He had problems. But his faith enabled him to lead his household into godliness. Lot's life ended in a catastrophic miserable state. You really couldn't ask for a worse ending to your life, especially a life that from the world's perspective was actually looking okay. Abraham, on the other hand, his life, on the one hand, ended in relative anonymity. Nobody in the ancient world, very few shed a tear when Abraham died. And yet, his life is possibly the most significant 
well-known and impactful life that's ever been lived in the history of the human race. And it's sad that so many Christians, unfortunately, their life looks more like Lot than Abraham. They're trying to pursue both God and wealth, comfort, luxury. They're trying to blend in as much as possible because of how much they need the esteem and the financial prosperity of their peers. It's hard to even tell the difference in some cases between Christians and non-Christians. And as a result... They're forfeiting all spiritual influence, all spiritual impact. They're living miserable lives that are just going to get more miserable as it goes on. You know, Lot, we learn that our decisions to compromise can have unintended disastrous consequences. You know, I'm sure he didn't mean for things to get that bad. He wasn't thinking, boy, I hope to lose all my family and have incest with my daughters in a cave somewhere. That wasn't what he was shooting for. But it was one step at a time, little by little, God trying to turn him back. And we see the consequences are disastrous. You'd you'd be surprised at how far you can fall with enough time living in compromise. And the agony that it will cause, like it caused Lot. But third and finally, what we see in Lot's life is we see a lesson about God's grace. We learn that the New Testament tells us Lot was a true believer. That should give us hope. We're wondering, I, I just haven't been good enough to come to God. I've made too many bad choices. Well, he made a lot of bad choices too. It was, but by putting his trust in God, he was granted forgiveness and salvation. That's what you need to do. That's your first step here tonight. We also see in Lot's life God reaching out to him again and again, despite his resistance, rescuing him, trying to point him back. Lot knew the way home the whole time. And if you're a believer who's living a compromised life, maybe you feel the agony Lot felt, and you also probably know the way back home, the way back to where God wants you to be. And if you don't, ask him. He'd be glad to answer that prayer. You don't have to go on living this way any longer. He could have turned back at any time. Finally, we're going to get to talk with Lot in heaven. We're going to see him there. You can go talk to him yourself if you want to and ask him about this. I know I intend to. And Lot, I imagine that he can look back on his life and see all of the compromise, all of the failure, and yet I believe he'd be able to tell you with tears of gratitude, how thankful he is for God's patience with him, for God's pursuit of him, and for God's forgiveness of him, in spite of his resistance, in spite of his stubbornness. In short, thankful for the grace of God. And so that's the story of Lot, the sad story of Lot. Yes, Lord, your salvation, it's a free gift, but it costs you everything. You gave so much to resolve that seemingly unbridgeable chasm between your justice and your love and mercy. Thank you for how you demonstrate your love and your justice on the cross and for how you extend forgiveness and mercy to anyone who's willing to come into that friendship with you. I pray that anybody here tonight who's who's never come into that relationship, that they would learn what it's like 
to be chosen by you for you to make them your friend. And I pray also for any Christians here who are living lives of compromise, Lord. It starts down in the heart. And I pray you would, you would ferret that out and you would show us where we're not living lives of, of real faith, but it's compromised faith. I pray you'd help us to get back on track, Lord, trusting you. And I pray that not just the story of Lot would serve as a warning, but the story of Abraham would serve as an incentive for what it's like for when people really trust you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.